All right, First Peter chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 13 through 17 this morning. I know it says more. That's not what's happening. Thank you very much. Um, Peter's been writing to a church who has been suffering persecution from non-believers. If any of you ever uh, suffered persecution, not for being silly or your personality or all that type of stuff, but because of Christ. It happens. It is happening more frequently. And really the whole thrust of what Peter's been speaking about, his message has been to basically how born-again believers are to live so that non-believers are reached and God is glorified through us. And that's kind of the thing. How, how, now that we are saved, that God is going to reach the unbelievers around us while all the, mi- uh, the while by glorifying God through us. In other words, how to glorify God in an ungodly world. That's what he's calling to us as believers. And I think anyone who's been born again desires two things that the Spirit longs to come about in our lives. Two things. One, that you bring glory to God. And number two, that you desire that others bring glory to God. I mean, that is, that is the heart of a Christian. We want God to be glorified. We want everybody to glorify God. We want everybody to come to know the God that we know and love, who has revealed himself to us, who first loved us, by the way. Amen? I don't know. That sounds like a pretty dead church. Amen? <laughs> Amen. Yeah, it's like, well, let's wake up. Maybe it's just no coffee yet. Or the Seattle lost last night. I don't know what it is, but mine's coming this morning. So we live in a fallen and sinful world. I wrote this last night. With, with fallen and sinful people of whom we have been some of the worst, amen? Saved by grace. And God busts into our life and he, we see his holiness. We knew our sin and shame and the spirit led us to Jesus who died in our place. He points us to Jesus, right? And he died in our place, paying the price for our sin, satisfying the wrath of God. And by God's grace, we believed and were saved and we were born again and his love now fills our hearts. And now we are waiting the day when we are united with our God face to face. But until then, we are in the fallen world we were saved out of. And now we live the rest of our time on earth here living a life of worship, a life of love, a life of good works. That is the proof that we have been born again, that we have been saved, that we have been changed from the inside out. And how we live now, it both glorifies God and is our witness, and is our witness to the lost world around us who are overcome by sin and death in the judgment to come. And when the world sees a changed person, when they see hope in their hearts in the midst of unbearable circumstances like Peter's audience, they start to ask questions. They start to wonder what's going on. And and the Holy Spirit's plan is to use you in the plan of their redemption. Amen. And so this is what Peter is speaking about as the church is going under suffering. It's going under persecution. It's going over difficult times, living in a world that doesn't necessarily like them anymore. And so in chapters 2 and 3 of 1 Peter, Peter has been explaining how to live this way um, in ver- with various kinds of relationships, in relationships to government, in relationships uh, at that time with a slave 
to a master, which would be the modern-day equivalent of employee to employer. And then he goes with non-believing wives living with, I'm sorry, with believing wives. How do you live with non-believing husbands? You come to Christ, what do you do? How do you win them? And then he talks about believing husbands, and then he even throws in, well, just how we get along together. How do we live to glorify God and, and make Christ attractive to people? How, how does the Lord do that? And as if we can make Christ attractive, he is attractive through us, which is amazing. These broken vessels. And so in chapter 2, verse 12, Peter gives us the principle that we need to know on how we live in this world. And if you have not been with us, write this down, underline it. It is a key verse. It says, Second uh, Peter, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, says, live, in, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, real quickly, do you see the, the phrase there, the pagans? You see that phrase? It means unbelievers, Gentiles, people who didn't care about the Lord. Do you know anybody like that? What I want you to do right now is write down the pagans and, and cross out the pagans or circle the pagans, whatever, don't remove scripture. But right above it, write someone's name that you have to deal with that is godless, that is unloving. It might be a family member. It might be a teacher. It might be a coworker. It might be a relative, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and write it in there. And, and what I want you to say to yourself, and this is kind of the practical application of all this, is whatever your name is, live such good lives among fill in the blank that though they accuse you of doing a wrong, fill in the blank, may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's what he's talking about. That you live such a good life around that person that they look at you and they go, there's something to this. It's, it's real. It's alive. It's not hypocrisy. And when they see it, perhaps they'll turn, they'll repent, they'll believe, and on the day the Lord comes, they'll give glory to God. That's the desire. That's what we're after here. So the heart of, a, of someone who's been born again is that others would come into the family of Christ. And this is how it happens. Not only through the gospel preached, but through the gospel lived. Amen? And so Peter's speaking of living lives that glorify God and testifying of him in our relationships to government and slaves and masters and employees, you know, employees of the modern day and all these other situations, wives and husbands, husbands and wives. And the key theme is that our relationships with non-believers, we live those lives that glorify God. How's that going for you? Anybody need help in that way? Amen. <laughs> totally. And that's why Peter's writing this. He's saying, you need help. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about these things with you. And he's going to say, this is who you are, by the way. And because of this is who you are in Christ, this is the hope you have. This is how you should now live. And that's how the apostles speak of these things. And so, in the meantime, while we are waiting for these people to come around and all this stuff, there's going to be suffering as we deny ourselves, as we lay down our lives like Christ did for us. And so that is the main thrust there. And so back to today's verse in chapter 3, starting in verse 13, Peter exhorts us and his readers. He says, who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Either way you cut it, you're blessed. Now, 
Peter just quoted Psalm 34, 12 through 26. Great psalm. Where David says, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. Verse 11 is key. They must seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the Lord are on the troublemakers. Kind of in a bad way. But the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ear is attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he just had said that. And so those of us who have been born again are by definition those who have turned from evil and turned towards good. And by the way, that is the definition of repentance. That's a practical, when it says, the Bible says repent, that's Christianese for turning from evil and doing good. And repentance isn't just turning away, it's turning towards. And that's the Christian life. We aren't just moral police where we sit around and we stop doing bad things. No, what do we do? We do the opposite because Christ has filled our hearts with love. Now those things are replaced with love and good deeds. This is what it means to repent. And so in our relationships with unbelievers, this change in our life is the witness of the gospel. How many of you were rotten? Anybody got rotten? Okay, you get rotten. You guys don't look rotten. What happened to you? I'm just kidding. That's judging the outside. But you know what I'm saying? How many of you were rotten? The rest of you are rotten. You just don't know it. (laughs) (laughs) I was rotten. And then, you know, the Lord comes and he changes someone's life. They're they're born again. They turn from evil. Excuse me. (coughs) Have you ever seen a Christian's life? Change. Like someone came to the Lord and they're radically different. You ever seen that? Like what the world happened? Oh, they found Jesus and the world mocks them. And they, they mocked Paul when he came to the Lord. They're like, oh yeah, okay, whatever, bud. They gave it some time, but that guy was radically changed. He was killing Christians. Now he's equipping Christians to go face persecution to die for the Lord. I mean, that is a radical change. And when you see someone uh, just totally lost and their mouth is running and all this type of stuff and you see Christ come into their life and there's a brokenness in their life and then all of a sudden, boom, they are the opposite person. Yeah, God's working out the rough spots, but there's a radical shift in them. They have changed. They have been born again. And I'm telling you this morning, if you have not been born again, that change is not evident. And I think that's what Gary was leading to. Have you experienced the grace of God in your life? When you experience the grace of God, there's a radical shift in your heart. You've got a roommate. God moves in. And so we can be churching it our whole lives and be dead as a doornail, and that is why religion is scary. And so we preach Christ. We preach that we must be changed in the inner man, and when you're changed from the inner man, The outward shows. Amen. And so those of us who have been born again are by definition those who have repented. And so our relationships with unbelievers, they see this change in us. They see the change. And so Peter's been saying, continue to let the Lord transform your life. Don't repay evil from evil. I know you want to in your selfish old nature. I know you want to repay insult with insult when they start to insult you. Deny yourself. Let that go. That's the old life. That's the old way. That's not the way of blessing. And so 
Who's going to harm you, Peter says in verse 13, if you're eager or zealous is actually the, the, the better word there that more reflects the Greek, if you're zealous for doing good. Who's going to harm you if you're zealous for doing good? And that's his point. And by the way, that word zealous is a strong word. It's fanatically going after good. How many of you are fanatics for going after good? Like crazy good people. Not, we got to figure that out, but you know what I'm talking about. When people look at you, you go, man, they really like, they are into righteousness and goodness and all those Christian terms. They really pursue that stuff. Those are what born-again believers do. The world is not concerned with that. The world is not concerned with that. Listen, that is our attitude towards doing good. And some of us with eyes glazed over this morning are going, okay, I do good, do good, do good. Listen to what God's plan for us is. Listen, Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. Paul, the apostle, is speaking to Titus. He's a, he's a, he's a kind of like a, an elder pastor over the church in Crete. And he's given him instructions about how to teach this new church and all this type of stuff. And then he says to teach these things. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. This is Titus 2, 11, 14. He says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. What does the grace of God teach? Verse 12, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great god and savior jesus christ and here's the kicker who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself for a people that are his very own what eager to do what is good Cross out eager and put the word zealous. That's what it is. NIV messed up again. Zealous. Zealous to do what is good. That is why Christ redeemed you from wickedness, to purify you, to make you a person who is his very own that is zealous for good works. Are you zealous for good works this morning? If the answer is no, the Holy Spirit, may he do a work in your heart this morning because you're missing the reason why he purchased you. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, you know, for by grace you have saved, saved through faith that is not, you know, work lest you boast all that stuff. It says, for we are Christ's workmanship or his poema, as, as Pastor Arthur pointed out, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, you know, before the foundations of the earth. I really butchered that. But anyways, you get it. Before the foundations of the earth, God prepared us to walk in the good works that he redeemed us for. That tells you that God not only is calling you to do something, he's prepared the works for you to walk in, and he's given you the Holy Spirit to empower you to walk in those good works. He's done it all. Obey. And that's what is shining to the world. We're zealous to do his will. We've got a zeal for the word of God. We long to just hear what our master says and go do it. That's what a Christian is. Christian means little Christ. You're a mimicker of Jesus. It was a mockery term in the first church in Antioch. You're saying, oh, you're little Christians. You're just like that Jesus guy. Yes. 
May it be so of us. May we be worthy of that title, Christians, in this culture that mocks Christians for hypocrisy. May they mock us for who we truly are. Amen? May we be worthy of that. Not in a, just, you know. In general, people are zealous about doing good. They're left alone. <laughs> you know? You ever have that, you have that one kid that maybe, you know, likes to do good all the time? You usually don't, you don't bug them too much, you know? But peace is, is, is what they're left to, to enjoy life. And so we're to be zealous to good, do good. But believers are often persecuted even for doing good. P- Peter recognizes this. It's not always the case when you do good that you're just going to be left alone. Sometimes bad people hate good people because they're shining light in their life. Amen. And so what happens? Peter says in verse 14, even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. It's okay if you suffer for what is right. Do you know that that's okay for doing good at your workplace? Doing good before whom? Before the Lord. It's okay to do good. You have permission to do good. Do you know that? You're actually called to it. And so go do good. Go love people. Go represent the Lord. Lay down your life. And if they don't like you, well, it's okay. You're blessed anyways. And why are we blessed? If you read back to 1 Peter chapter um, 1, verses 3 through 5, he says, In his great mercy he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming salvation that is ready to be revealed in last time. Again, he's springboarding off this. You're blessed. You have eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so even if we suffer for doing good, we will be blessed. And they are going to suffer and die is what's going to happen to these people he's writing to horrifically and their children. So Peter says in the latter part of verse 14, don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. As our culture continues to degrade into ungodliness, <coughs> I believe there's an increasing fear of repercussions for believers to actually live out their faith in Christ among unbelievers. Any of you guys feel that? Sense that at your workplace? Um, if I actually live out my faith, let's just kind of just say even playing field. The people who are in the office or wherever it is that, that proclaim their darkness, there's, there's little consequence. They accept that, usually. I mean, there's a slap on the wrist. Sometimes it gets great. But you know what I'm saying. And generally, it's, it's not the same as someone who proclaims Christ, loves Christ, try to, try to you know, like, what is the message we're, we're proclaiming? Love one another. Deny yourself. You know, I mean, that's the message we're, we're proclaiming here. And that can only happen through the new birth. Well, by the way, you're a sinner and you're going to go to hell unless you get changed. I mean, that's the message. It's offensive. But I'm just saying, in general, these, you know, it's, it's getting less and less tolerant for Christians. And as we are in the world, there's a sense of, I can't say what, who I truly am. And the world's pushing down on you and telling you to keep it private. Is that the same thing they have for everybody else? And by the way, I'm not asking for fairness. 
That's what policies are at your workplace. That's what, uh, you know, what's spoken and going on in the world, all this type of stuff. So if you actually stand for Christ and you speak up for Christ and you, and you love someone and you proclaim the gospel and you say that people must repent or whatever it might be, you're gonna sense the hammer coming down on you in way, one way or the other. Yes? That's called fear. Correct? You're fearing what's going to happen to you, what they're going to do, how they're going to react, all these things. Now, the people that Peter was speaking to, they had real cause and concern for fear. They were going to die. Okay? And Peter says, do not fear their threats. Do not be what? Frightened. But what? In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. As a pastor, I'm often called to equip saints for the work of the ministry. I am called to that. And part of equipping saints is encouraging people to evangelize the lost, like I'm doing right now. And as I get a chance to speak with people who are genuinely wanting to obey Jesus Christ and his call upon the church to go and reach the lost, I am always dealing with a couple things. One is, one is people don't truly, can't, they don't really understand what they believe, <coughs> which is understandable. And, or, or, and number two, they don't know, they're, they're kind of feel, they're kind of unsure, kind of like what I'm doing right now, unsure of how to communicate what they want to say. And then that uh, creates a lot of tension, and so they just rather not do it. Anybody else, any sense that? Now, some of us don't even get beyond that step to equip ourselves to know those things, and, and, and that's where the church, we need to do a better job of discipling and equipping and all those types of things, which I'll get into. But then, really, I think the thing that I, I discuss with people most is they're scared of what's going to happen when they do it. What is going to happen with that family member? What's going to happen with that person? What's gonna, what are the repercussions or, or the relationships? What's going to happen there? Any of you sense that and feel that? I think we all do. We all have. And if you haven't, you haven't tried it. And are you even born again? <laughs> you know, I want to ask those questions because uh, a believer wants people to come to Christ. They're going to be involved in it in one way or the other, either in uh, supporting it or praying for it or, or seeking it out or encouraging others to go do it, you know, all that kind of stuff. So we want people to come to Christ, but it, there, there comes a point when they need to hear the gospel and see the gospel. And it's offensive. Paul says that it's offensive. It's a stumbling block. And he talks to the Jews. They want to see a sign. And the Greeks, they, they want to see wisdom and all these types of things. But Christ is, he's not the wisdom of the world. He's not going to give you a sign. The only sign he's going to give you is that he died and rose again. And so we have fear. We have fear putting our Bible in plain view on our desk. Anybody have that? But people can have Kabbalah and whatever the heck else is on that desk. You know, and, and we are fearful, not that we want to, you know, disrupt the whole, you know, our, our working environment just to make it an evangelism. We want to be a blessing. But I mean, why should we fear putting our scriptures on our desk or having a verse on something or expressing who we are in Christ? <clears throat> we fear having a Bible or we fear 
the scorn of an unbelieving teacher or professor and our peers around us or a family member. And I'm sure if we explored it and we talked about it a little bit more, we can, f- we can dig up all the reasons why we don't want to do what, we d- what God has gloriously called us to do. Proclaim the gospel among the lost by living righteously and speaking when the Spirit says speak. And so, while we not while we might not yet face physical persecution, although I believe it's coming, the, the precursors, they're, they're here. The precursors are here, and, and we fear. And I've shared the story with you before when I was in San Diego, and I'm in line, and, 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 I'm, and I'm, the Lord just puts it on my heart, go share the gospel with these people in front of you that are Hare Krishnas, that are pumping gas. I'm like, Lord, they're just going to give me a big old no. I already worked it out. But instantly, when the Lord puts that on your heart, that's not the Lord, by the way. I mean, that's not, that's not you. That's the Lord. If, if someone's telling you to go share the gospel with someone, that's not you. That's the Lord. He's telling you, go share, go share me with others. You know that's not you because you're not like, yeah, let's go do that. That's what I want to do right now. No, it's denial of self. But you love the Lord more than you do, so you go ahead and get out and do it. And what if they flat out deny you? You go, thanks, Lord. And as I shared that story, people were looking. I didn't know. Christians. And they actually saw what I believed being lived out in action. Thank Lord. <laughs> he was gracious to me, and it was an encouragement to them. I didn't realize it wasn't for them. Well, it was for both. And I just had to be obedient. And so we might not face that physical persecution, but we're fearful. We're fearful. And this is why the Lordship of Jesus Christ must be revered in your hearts. Do you revere Christ as Lord in your hearts this morning? Because that will determine all of this. Peter exhorts us to revere or sanctify is another word in our hearts as Christ is Lord. The word here for revere is hagiazo in the Greek, which is translated sanctified or hallow. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he's teaching his disciples to pray. In Matthew 6, 9, when he says, this is then how you should pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed, highly exalted, set apart, above everything else, totally separate, exalted, So what does it mean to hallow Christ in your heart, revere Christ in your heart? Set him at the top. Set him at the top. Set him above and apart from man as your your Lord. And and again, that's kind of a King Jamesy word, that word Lord, but the idea behind the word Lord, it's kurios, it's interchangeable for God, and the idea is it's master. It's the master, one who owns everything else. In the Roman world, there was, there was, Christians were put to death because they would not say that Caesar is Lord. That's why they were put to death, because they were saying that, no, Jesus is kurios. He is, a, he is the master. He is above all. You see, Caesar wanted to be revered as God. 
And the way it was is that Romans had tons of different gods. We know that from the Greeks. They inherited a bunch and created their own and all this type of stuff. And, and as they did, they had a god over, you know, over their garden. They had a god over, you know, who knows, their sprinklers. They, had god, they just got gods all over the place, right? And, and this god would not be necessarily more powerful than this god. And there was rankings of gods, but, you know, at the top, there was the Lord of the gods. And that was Caesar. And so when a Christian says, no, Jesus is Lord, they say, recant that. Say Caesar is Lord and you're good to go. You can have your God. As Arthur was speaking to you last night, he pointed to Arthur, he was sitting over there earlier. (laughs) Sorry, you're like, I'm not Arthur. (laughs) Get up here. (laughs) And so that is what Peter's talking about. In your heart, revere Christ as above everything else. When it comes to Christ, it is important to know that when we put our faith in Christ, it is not as Jesus just as Savior. It is also Jesus as Lord and Savior. You remember that little phrase, Jesus as Lord and Savior? That's very important. It's a package deal. We surrender our lives to him to rule us forevermore, to lead us, to guide us. Romans 10, 9, another important verse. He says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is what? Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Salvation is predicated on you believing that Jesus is what? Lord, and that he rose from the dead, Savior. And so it's saying that he is Lord because he has power over sin. He has power over the punishment of sin. He has power to raise you up from the dead. He is Lord. He's over it all. And that's very important. That is how we live as Christians with Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I believe that it is impossible for someone to claim that Jesus is their Savior and neglect His Lordship over their lives. And yet, that is how we try to live our lives sometimes. We want you to be Savior, but we don't want you to be Lord today. Anybody else struggle with that? If you're breathing, say yes. <coughs> Amen. I'm just talking to my own self here. In other words, to say that he is Lord and yet not actually have that lordship demonstrated in our lives is to be fooled, right? We surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ through obedience by the Spirit who empowers us. And so if we claim to trust God as Savior, that's shown by submitting the rest of our lives and obeying Jesus. Is Jesus Lord of your life today? If not, let's put him back on the throne. Get off that throne. (laughs) It's not yours. You were bought with a price. Amen? Jesus makes what his lordship is very clear. And I want to focus on this just for a second because this is so important. Because this determines what we do and how we react to the world around us. Okay? This is why I'm talking about this for a minute here. Flip over to to Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23. It'll be up on the board as well. Jesus is speaking about his lordship. Now, it's not just saying that Jesus is Lord, church. It's not just saying Jesus is Lord and Savior. It's not the words that save a person. It's actually faith demonstrated itself in good works. I wouldn't say works save you, but I mean, it's the proof that you're saved, right? So Jesus 
makes clear what his lordship is like. Verse, chapter 7, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. <laughs> Pretty hardcore teaching. You can say, Lord, Lord, all you want. But what separates the sheep from the goats? The one who does the will of the Father. So we are we saved by works or are we saved by faith? And I tell you that someone who is saved by faith will demonstrate their life in obedience to Christ. That's the way the, the scriptures lay it out. You're not saved by works, but they are the evidence that you are saved. The good works. You're obedient to the Lord. Many will say to me on the day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons on demons and perform many miracles? Did we not preach sermons in your name? And he'll say plainly to you, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Wait a second. Preaching, casting out demons, all things, evildoers? Well, somehow in God's eyes, these things are evil, these guys are evildoers. Why is that? Is he looking at the action or is he looking at what he says in the obedience, the heart? And then Jesus immediately goes on in verse 24. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. And then he goes on to explain the storms that come and all that type of stuff. And this is in the context of good tree, bad tree, good fruit, bad fruit. This is the, I would read the whole chapter if I were you. And it isn't even calling Jesus Lord that proves that he is Lord of your life. Jesus say, says, you know, people say Lord. And they, we did, they did all this great stuff in your name. You know, what's going on? And they're going to be sent to hell. This is real. So do not think that doing religious stuff alone is what counts. No, Jesus must be Lord of your life. Obedience is God's love language, church. If you love me, Jesus says, you'll obey me. And my, the burden, the, the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. Amen? They are to love one another as I have loved you. And that's what the heart of the gospel is. And we're changed. And people see it. And so Peter says, don't feel their threats. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Peter is saying, honor, worship, love, and fear, and revere Christ, not men. That's what he's saying. Obey his voice, seek his pleasure, seek his glory, be concerned with what pleases Christ and not man. It's quite easy for us to belie- as believers to elevate our reverence and fear of man above our love and reverence for Jesus when we're faced with man's threats and displeasure. And that's what we face, man's threats and their displeasure when we, when we go the other way. And so if this morning you are afraid of sharing the gospel because you are worried about someone's reaction, and if you are afraid of living righteously in good works before non-believers that surround you, you do not have a fear issue. You have a lordship issue. That's it. You're like, but I'm afraid. Who are you afraid of more? <laughs> That's it, lordship, right? Who do you fear more? Who do you revere more? And that's the heart of it. We, and the fact is we revere men 
more than we revere God quite often. And, and this is why Peter's encouraging us as we, here he is 2,000 years removed and we've got a dark society around us and things are going on and you got to establish in your heart right now Christ as Lord. I revere you more than I revere fill in the blank. And it's not to dishonor them. It's not to treat them with disrespect. That's not what he's getting at. But you honor the Lord in your heart and your life in every way. You will do good. And you let the chips fall where they may because you're blessed. Amen? And so do not fear their frets. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, revere Christ as Lord. Let's end there because the next thing, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asked ask you to give the reason for the hope that you have this is apologetics this is this is this is what i really want to focus on you notice he says always be prepared to give an answer we are to be preppers we're going to go into being preppers next week okay we're going to prepare to give an answer when always to whom everyone anytime an answer an answer means defense apologia that's where you get the word apologetics so we are going to equip us to give answers. And where I want to go with this, uh, I'll have to talk with the elders a little bit more about this, but I just want to grab your questions. What questions do you have? And notice we're defending the hope, not the position. And so there's a lot there. I'll preach it next week. But come up with questions in your mind that you need answered. Like hard questions, you go, hey, what about this? What do I do about this? It might not even be from someone else. It might be even your own heart. And I want to gather those questions together, and I want to start to answer them for you to help equip you to, not that I have every answer, but to help equip you to have the answer. I feel like we're unprepared for this. I think that we, we believe, and someone comes up with a smart argument, and then we lose our faith, and we're like, okay, God, what do we do? Listen, take a few hits and learn how to learn how to fight, <laughs> right? And it's not, not a, not fight back, but I mean, to love and to respond, that they would win Christ in our, in our, in our words, in our speech, in our actions, and our responses, amen? So Lord God, we, we lift up this, this church, Lord, that you've redeemed. I want to thank you for every single person in here this morning, and I ask that you would give them your, the joy of your spirit. I want to thank you for that picture of communion, Lord, that you've given, that the holiness of God is beyond anything we could ever describe. And, and as, as Gary painted that picture and as Revelation 1 and 4 and all these other places and in Ezekiel and Daniel and all these other places that describe your throne room, Lord, of your glory, men just fall down before you. And, and as we realize our unworthiness and our unholiness before you, O oh God, and all your splendor, you and your kindness, are totally other than us. You, you, you cleansed us by the blood of your Son to bring us to where you are for all eternity, that we would be one with you. What is that? What kind of love is that? And Lord, you desire that we would, with open arms and broken hearts, just like your Son, lay down our lives that others might live. So Lord, let your love fill our hearts and may people come to know you as we are wholly devoted to you, as we are separate from the world, we are in it, not of it. Empower your church this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.